0: or a territory of the city automatically included you in Christendom. And the 16th century believers who started reading their Bibles wanted to break away from the state church. In fact, they're considered the left wing of the Reformation. If you've got Zwingli and Luther on one end, you have the Anabaptists on the others. Luther, Zwingli, and Calvin tried to reform the church from within and did so with varying degrees of success, but they still believed in state church concept, still believed in infant baptism, and so on. The early Anabaptists were literally um, radical in their rejection of the state church, in their rejection of infant baptism. Um, They essentially called for a separation of church and state, something that we take for granted in our culture, in Western cultures, uh, having that freedom, uh, but at one time, you put your life on the line if you baptize people outside of the constraints of the organized church. Perhaps the most influential of the modern Anabaptist statements. I'm not going to try to make a transition from the 15th century to the 21st century. Okay, that 500 year period is too big. We'll talk about some of the same issues, but they'll be different in terms of the way they're lived out. The classic statement in this whole area is a little booklet published, I think it was around 1944 in Mennonite Quarterly Review and there were other places that it showed up called The Anabaptist Vision. And there's some out here on the table for 250. It's probably the best introduction to this whole area, and what these men and women had to say. And I'd like to take just a few, read you a few comments about what he has to say about the Anabaptist. And this is, by the way, written by an Anabaptist person. First and fundamental in the Anabaptist vision was the conception of the essence of Christianity as discipleship. State church concept, Christianity was you were a part of it because the culture was and you were a part of that kingdom of Christianity. Discipleship, a concept which meant the transformation of the entire way of life of the individual believer and of society, so that it should be fashioned after the teachings and example of Christ. Does that sound familiar to you? It should. Very similar to where we stand. The Anabaptists could not understand a Christianity which made regeneration, holiness, and love primarily a matter of intellect, of doctrinal belief or of subjective experience rather than one of the transformation of life. They demanded an outward expression of the inner experience. Repentance must be evidenced by newness of behavior. In evidence is the keynote which rings through the testimonies and challenges of the early Swiss Swiss brethren when they are called to give an account of themselves. The whole life was to be brought under the Lordship of Christ in a covenant of discipleship, a covenant which the Anabaptist writers delighted to emphasize. Faith was important. Faith was the starting point, but it didn't end there. Following was given important weight also. Nachfolge Christi is the term that was used. And baptism was, accordingly, to be for them a covenant of a good conscience toward God, 1 Peter 3.21. It was the pledge of a complete commitment to obey Christ and not primarily the symbol of a past experience. The Anabaptists had faith indeed, but they used it to produce a life. Not just faith and belief, but faith and belief to produce a life, an alternative to what was offered to them in the general culture. Theology was for them a means, not an end. And I could go on and, and this is a very fascinating reading, some history of the early people in this, but many of the issues that come up would sound very familiar to you. Now, who are the modern-day Anabaptists? Our beliefs, historically, as well as our current beliefs, would clearly fall within that Anabaptist camp. And I thought of putting a slide together, it's just as well I didn't, uh, (laughs) uh, with a series of statements and ask you whether or not you would believe these are true of our faith. And that would be this rebaptism, the adult baptism, and, and uh, separation of church and state, and, and the community of believers, the fellowship of believers, the regenerated life, the conversion experience, and so on. And I don't know how many of you would agree with that, but most of you would all agree with those things, and it would sound very contemporary. But it was written in 1527, in what was one of the major statements on Anabaptist beliefs, the Schleitheim Confession, um, that stated a number of principles of church practice. Not so much doctrinal issues, but church practice. And it's very interesting to read that, because it sounds like it could have been written by some of our brothers today, with the things that they, uh, that they believed. Who are the contemporary Anabaptists? Well, on the extreme end, you've got the Amish and the Hutterites, Church of the Brethren, Mennonites, of course, the Apostolic Christian Church, both of America, as well as Apostolic Christian Church, Nazarene. And uh, just by way of comparison, uh, the Mennonites are probably about a million people worldwide. And I think they've got congregations in all states, but a few, three or four of them, uh, they, they do not have. Would like to talk now about some of the Anabaptist beliefs. Gee, all the neat graphics i got going here, they're just not, you're not going to see any of it. <laughs> just use your imagination. What are some of the beliefs? First of all, the authority of the Bible. For the Anabaptists and those early believers, it was not what the authority of the, the state church said was important, but rather they would open their Bibles and they would read for themselves what the scriptures said. The early Anabaptists wanted to re- reinstate the New Testament church. They wanted to recreate New Testament Christianity. And what that basically means is putting a very heavy emphasis on the teachings of Jesus and following them and living a life that Jesus lived. Now, theoretically, most Christian faiths would believe that statement. They would say, yes, Jesus is God's major revelation to humankind. But they would say Jesus was perfect. He was God while he was man. It's impossible to live the way Jesus lived. Therefore, we live our lives as we see fit. The Anabaptists said, no. Jesus wouldn't have told us to follow if it weren't possible to follow. Jesus didn't tell us and the Sermon on the Mount and other places about our relationships with one another, just to be theoretical about it. He didn't buy into the Pharisaical teachings that uh, the religious establishment of his day advocated. Jesus spoke to the people. He spoke very practically and dealt with daily living. So we've got the authority of the Bible, number one, The reinstatement of New Testament Christianity. Thirdly, was a believer's baptism. This was the major issue, I think, that the Anabaptists had problems with, a believer's baptism. You had to be of age to make a decision whether or not you wanted to follow Christ. Just being born wasn't good enough. To be born into the community was not enough. At some point, you had to make a decision And those individuals who were re-baptized then became a part of the Anabaptist community and the Anabaptist church in that area. So it was a believer's baptism as opposed to an infant or other type of baptism. A fourth point, a voluntary community resulted from these believers. People got together because they wanted to, because they wanted to support one another in faith, They wanted to live out the principles of Christ. They would meet for Bible study. They would meet for prayer. They would meet for witnessing. They would bring friends into the group and talk with them. And it was a community of believers who spread the word and supported one another. And it wasn't long in those early years until they experienced all kinds of persecution. I read one place it was estimated that in that first century from around, what, 15 twenty-four or so the next hundred years there were over four thousand Anabaptists who were martyred in one fashion or another. Um, Very unfortunate circumstances and yet you and I are the benefactors of that today. A fifth point is discipleship. I mentioned that already. I read that to you from the Anabaptist vision by Harold Bender that uh, discipleship was extremely important to these people. It wasn't enough just to believe. One had to also Follow. Hello. Welcome. We're very glad to see you. Take a short break here for a word from our sponsor. <laughs> Do I need to shut this down? Gracias. Take a moment to warm it up. Even back further, because we're going to need most of the screen. I don't know if you can all see that or not. Thank you very kindly. Okay, that's what I started out with, challenges to an Anabaptist heritage, the changing realities of denominations, gaining perspective. What does Anabaptist mean? Who are they? And some about us being an Anabaptist denomination. What do they believe? How do our beliefs compare? And where do we go from here? How do we proceed? I believe this is the area where we had stopped in regard to Anabaptist belief. had talked about the authority of the Bible being foremost, reinstating New Testament Christianity, a believer's baptism, voluntary community or brotherhood of people willingly getting together to study, to read the Bible, to preach, and so on. And then this concern for discipleship. Being a disciple, first of all, following the teachings of Jesus and living those teachings, and secondly, related to that, um, bringing others into a discipling relationship in the church. I don't know what I'm okay. The Lord's Supper. This was practiced among these people and got them also into a good deal of hot water because they didn't. They did it outside of the, of the state church. Um, The Lord's Supper was symbolic for the Lutherans, the Calvinists, uh, Zwingli people, if I'm not mistaken. The Lord's Supper was the bodily presence of the blood and the body of Christ. And of course, the Anabaptists reacted against that and said, no, this is symbolic. The wine stands for the body and the bread stands for, uh, wine stands for the blood and the bread stands for the body. And uh, it is symbolic, and it is a remembrance. It is not an actual participation in that physical, spiritual body of Christ and blood of Christ. Lay leadership was practiced. Um, from among the congregations of people, it was decided among the church who should provide leadership to the group, who should be preaching and doing the related functions associated with that role. Uh, It was an important function, obviously. These were the people who had to give account to the authorities for their behavior. These were the individuals who were expected to provide uh, and to divide uh, the Word of God among the believers. But the important point is they were elected from the congregation. They were chosen by the congregation. Uh, Contemporary Anabaptists, you will find some who still do this. We are among those uh, clearly, and there are still some uh, of the other Anabaptist groups that use this procedure. Others, uh, such as the denomination of Mennonites that this university belongs to, obviously with the seminary, there's a trained uh, pastorate and trained leadership. But historically, it started out as a lay leadership group. Separate from the world. What does it mean to be separate from the world? For the early Anabaptists taking the teachings of Jesus seriously, they belonged to the kingdom of God. They lived in the world, but not of the world. And so believed in a very clear separation uh, from the dominant culture. Now this whole idea of separation has been a very problematic one for Anabaptists. Because in some groups, you get complete separation from the world, at least as much as that's possible. You're all familiar with the Amish to some extent. Probably less familiar with the Hutterites, who live in colonies and uh, uh, practice the same, similar kinds of things as uh, do uh, some of the, uh, the Amish groups. But a separateness from the world, being distinct, being not a part of the world, in it, but not of it. They believed the church had to be visible. By that is meant you had to be able to tell by a person's actions and behavior that they were a member of the kingdom of God. There was no mistaking that Jesus and his walk on earth was not a part of his contemporary society. Uh, Even some of the disciples, they asked him, Lord, is it time? Uh, When will you be coming again? And Peter drew his sword in the garden to fight. And Jesus says, no, my kingdom, that's not the way things work in my kingdom. But Jesus had a visible presence of God's kingdom, the kingdom of God here on earth. And very much in early as well as contemporary Mennonite and Anabaptist writings, you've got this idea of a visible church. What is the impact of the church on the world around them? The idea should be that the way we live as Christians should be the way the whole world lives. Think about that. The way we live as Christians should be the way that the whole world lives. Isn't that what Jesus said? Go out and preach the gospel and spread the good news to everybody, everywhere. And bring them into the kingdom. And is the kingdom, is it visible here on earth? Or do people just get... Baptized, converted, and then go their way and act and do and be whatever they choose. We'll get into that issue in a bit. The oath was a very important concept among these early people because the oath was a way of telling the church, excuse me, telling the state church or the culture, we don't use your system. We will not swear. Jesus told us to say, yay, yay, and nay, nay. And that's all we are committed to. We will tell you the truth. And they were expected to swear with all kinds of things, legal documents and so on. They refused to do it. It was a smack in the face of the civil authorities as well as the church authorities to not take the oath. Why? Because Jesus said, you don't live by those principles. It's the way the world does things. That's the way they supposedly guarantee that people will tell the truth and they said, no, Jesus told us to tell the truth at all times among each other as well as in society and that's what we're going to do. Today among the various groups you have some that are very clearly identified with a separate kingdom kind of mentality the Amish and the Hutterites in particular, very conservative, have alternative ways of living and have really, almost in a remarkable kind of way, uh, managed to keep themselves going. You could say, in spite of their beliefs, you could say, because of their beliefs, you could say, in spite of difficulties of modern culture and contemporary living, or you could, it's a separate kingdom kind of mentality. And, of course, you get people who are more, I'll call, the middle of the road, like the Apostolic Christian Church and our churches. And then you get some who are very much on what would be considered the liberal end, that you would see very little differences in their visible Christianity from people who are not, people who are still in the world, people who are not converted. So you get a wide variety of experiences uh, in terms of this visibility issue among the Anabaptist groups. Some blend in pretty greatly with culture. Okay, kind of in summary, authority of the Bible, reinstating New Testament Christianity, a believer's baptism, voluntary community or brotherhood, discipleship, the symbolism of the Lord's Supper, lay leadership, separation from the world, the visible church, honesty, the oath. Didn't talk about non-resistance. Non-resistance, peaceful way of settling problems of settling differences of opinion. Not fighting back and doing, um, doing it differently than the way the world does. And also another issue, service to others. Taking the teachings of Jesus, who in the most humbling example washed the feet of his disciples, indicated servanthood and being used for the benefit of the church community as well as symbolizing and contributing a presence to the contemporary culture. One of the issues that comes up, and I think it's a very important one for us, do we consider these issues core to the gospel or are they options? This might be worth discussing. We won't take the time right at the moment. We might come back to it if you'd like to, but We would probably say, well, taking the Lord's Supper is not an option. Christians are expected to do that. And um, the believer's baptism, we we accept that, that people of their own free will choose to be a part of the kingdom of God and choose and want to be baptized because of a new life. The idea of a visible church, though, is a little bit harder, I think, for us to accept. You know, when you see an Amish family come into a buggy and go into Walmart they make a statement a statement that probably doesn't miss any of us nor the people in our culture and regardless of their believing very differently from those people you have to admit there is a presence there that says something I'm not going to we're not going to talk about that but core to the gospel for them is that being separate from the world and having a visible church. And you identify that in the garb, the clothing that they wear, uh, the veiling, and so on. Now, I would maintain that many of the problems that we have to deal with comes down to the fact that we consider some of these things options. I mean, is non-resistance an optional viewpoint for a Christian? When Jesus, when we were told that even while we were yet sinners, Christ loved us. Um, I think it's Romans five ten. Let me just read that. For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by His death, by the death of His Son. Much more, being reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. When we were enemies to God. We were reconciled. And that's what we would want for our enemies. Jesus told us very clearly in the Gospels what our relationship should be with our enemies. And over the years that has been twisted from a, you know, you do this among yourselves, but when it comes time for war, then we support the state. And that was one of the problems that Luther had, uh, was the fact that it supported war. And so the whole idea of non-resistance was not taken seriously beyond individual kind of relationships within a church. In a rather interesting book um, called The Mennonite Mosaic by Kaufman and Dreidger, This is a conclusion they come to. Our general conclusion is that while modernization tends to seduce people towards secularization, individualism, and materialism, the tendency is, for the most part, counteracted by strong religious family and community and institutional identity that provides a sense of peoplehood. In other words, you can counteract some of the pressures of society, those things being secularization, individualism, materialism, by having strong religious identity strong families and a strong community identity and we've had forms, in fact there's probably one going on now that's dealing with family issues and the idea of strengthening our families and doing that not just to have strong families but to have families that are a part of the kingdom of God and are living and preparing the next generation to follow in footsteps and to do the same. And the idea of a strong community identity. We'll talk a little bit about that uh, to come up. Okay, where does identity come from? Um, You know, some would say, well, we get our identity from society. But there's a, in, in our culture, however, it has shifted from a religious to a Philosophical foundation for truth. There was a time when, in this country and much of Western Europe, where the values that Christians have and the Anabaptists had, at least the major core Christian beliefs, would be supported by the major culture. But you know, that's not true anymore. And we heard yesterday in the one forum about what is truth, about modernism and postmodernism that causes us to stand even more alone than had been the case in previous generations. It was thought that modernity, one commonly shared truth, would uh, emerge from presumed universal philosophy. The idea of probably something akin to utilitarianism. Do what is practical. What works is what is best. And use science to determine that but we found out that with all of our rationalism and all of our reasoning and all of our science people still fight and people still have wars. You could make the case that rampant fundamentalism in religion worldwide is worse now than it probably was fifty years ago in this country. Certainly when I was growing up as a kid you didn't hear of and you didn't have the uh, religious fundamentalism, the fervor that is, going throughout the world where people are willing to die, I should probably say murder, others with bombings and and things of that sort, out of religious ideas. Now, the postmodernists doubt this idea that you can have one universal philosophy and settle the world's problems with it. I had to leave the forum, I believe it was yesterday, on uh, post-modernity and and that issue, and I don't know what extent you got into it. I had class to teach, but at any rate, here are some of the ideas. There is no one definition of this area. Uh, Different authors treat it differently and so on, but relativism. No absolutes. And I would say in light of the forums, uh, excuse me, the um, um, messages we've had and our theme for this week, there are no fears it was mentioned in the one sermon the bumper sticker about fear this I see the stickers that say no fear and fearing nothing nothing is worth fearing to many of these individuals individualism is rampant everybody doing their own thing and you will hear in college classes and universities across the country and in many church related schools you will hear things like if it's right for you it's right And if it's not right for you, it isn't. But if it's good for me, it is, and so on. And everybody's in this moral relativism where you don't know what's right and what's not. And, of course, people going off to college and being put in that kind of a situation with lots of other people who are the same way and with a culture that supports that relativism, it's no wonder people don't have any bearings and don't know what's right and wrong and don't have really anything to follow. There are no good reasons for anything. In what way can you say Christianity is superior to another religion? Someone might ask you. We need to be prepared to answer that. I call it a whatever attitude. Whatever. Hey, do it your way. That's okay. It works if it works for you. May not for me, but I gotta have tolerance. I have to accept what it is that you will do. There's no shared meaning. You can't assume that everybody comes f- from a Christian kind of background. There's a lot of work that's going on. You know, computers were to make life easier for us. We were gonna work less hours. Remember all of that back in the 60's some of us? It's just the opposite of happened. We've got more paperwork now than ever. We've got more technology that sometimes we can make it work and sometimes not. Um, too much work. Work hours have increased, not decreased. And this idea of consumption, endless consumption. We've always wondered, man, how many cars can you park in a driveway? You know, back in Herbert Hoover's days, it was, you know, two chickens in every pot or something like that. Now it's, you know, how many cars? I mean, our, our, our whole culture is dependent upon, our economy is dependent upon consuming Buying more. If people would simply buy more, we'd be out of the economic doldrums that we're at. Is that really the answer? How about an identity from the evangelicals? Popular, mass media, Christianity, the kind where you flip on your radio and you can hear a preacher just about any time of the day or night, and in a number of places on the dial. Um, Television, broadcasting networks. Um, Moody Bible Institute, back in the 1920s, was one of the very first pioneers of this whole area of using the airwaves to spread the gospel. Um, The question becomes, to what extent do people get their identity from that? I mean, okay, let's assume that somebody sits down on a Sunday morning in front of their television and participates in a service. in their pajamas, maybe eating breakfast, commitment, fellowship, community of believers. Who do you identify with? Or do you just say, that was a nice experience, I enjoyed that, I feel good about myself, and you go your merry way. The name it, claim it mentality is another way of looking at it. Individualism. Much of evangelical Christianity is extremely individualistic. The only thing that's important, really, is your relationship with God. And if you and I and a few other people happen to meet and come together, and maybe we can even worship, but that's almost accidental in comparison to that relationship with God. There's almost no horizontal relationship. The church is something that kind of happens when believers come together. Is that really the way Jesus taught it? Is the church just something that results from people happening to come together with common interest, Or is the church something that brings believers together to form bonds and a witness that goes beyond what any of us can do as individuals on our own? There have been studies done with um, various groups Churches that have changed their names, for example. Very fascinating reading. I happen across that material and I say, I'm going to read this because we've got churches that have changed names. And, you know, are you better off changing a name to be a better witness? To avoid people making certain assumptions about your faith because of your name? And um, um, at least the one study that I read, a book length uh, study of this whole process over the years, Uh, said it didn't make any difference there were there were no more people that became members of the church or stayed members of the church because the name changed Um, and often what happens with a name change is that then that group uh, their beliefs follow along or it's probably the beliefs that bring about the name change to begin with and then they get somewhat engulfed in the mainstream Christian culture and so they're really unidentifiable from any other, we'll call it, Bible church. Is there anything wrong with that? Well, I guess it depends on what all they believe as a part of being that Bible church. Servant attitude, commitment to the church, I mentioned that. Any kind of congregational authority. I mean, who calls the shots when in the TV preaching? The congregation? Do you think they have opportunity to vote on things? Where does the authority lie? Well, you can answer that question probably as good or better than I can. What about our identity? Does our faith give us a different way of looking at the world? Is our Christian worldview Anabaptist? And how do we reinforce our beliefs and practices? What is our concept of the church? Do we just see believers in parallel with one another, in a vertical relationship with God, or do we have this horizontal relationship with one another and we are accountable to our brother and sister and vice versa. They are accountable to us. Why? Because that's how Christ dealt with His church. That's how Christ dealt with His followers. With whom do we identify? My whole point, if you get nothing else out of this, (laughs) would be to say that we should identify with an Anabaptist heritage because it is closest to what we have historically believed and I think there is a place and a witness for those beliefs in our world today. With all this confusion going on with the post-modernity things and with no viable standards and no rules, that's an ideal opportunity to be a witness in a very unique kind of way and people will tolerate it and accept it. They may think it's different, and they may think that they don't want to be a part of it. But that's the gospel that they're rejecting ultimately, not you and not me. Are we just a different church, or are we a mutually exclusive alternative? I put evangelicalism in there. I could have used any other kind of Christian faith. In other words, are we just one of many other denominations out there, or do we have something that is uniquely different because it is closer to the teachings of the entire Gospel and not just bits and pieces of it? Go back to those dozen or so very fundamental Anabaptist beliefs, and those are the things that make us, I'll call it, different. A lot of people out there believe, a lot of people out there have faith. Do they practice any kind of discipleship? And along with that, is there any sort of discipline? Is there any sort of church accountability? To my brother and sister, me to them, them to me. Let's move on. Okay. I would propose that we need to affirm the believer's interpretation of Scripture that doesn't mean that I have my interpretation, you have yours, and the third person has his or hers. It means that together the believers decide that interpretation. That we reaffirm our identity as Anabaptist. It's a viable heritage in the postmodern world. You don't have to be engulfed by mainstream evangelical Christianity. Nor does it necessarily mean we would be a better witness by doing so yes you may get more people coming to church and yes you may get more members but do you get committed people? do you get people who are willing to submit themselves to the discipline of the church? to do things that are of benefit for the community and not just for oneself. focusing on non-resistance commitment to a way of peace. how are people going to in our own circles? some of us just assume that this will happen when was the last time you heard a sermon from your pulpit on non-resistance, on not fighting back. How do we expect these ideas to be propagated if we're not going to teach them? I've had people accuse me of saying, David you're putting denomination ahead of the Bible. No, I believe and with all my heart that non-resistance and the teaching of Jesus to love our enemies and to turn the other cheek is The gospel, not in and of itself, but it is a part of the gospel. And I don't see for Christians that being an option. Jesus taught it. And if you accept the authority of Jesus as God's greatest revelation to mankind, I don't see how you can make non-resistance an optional thing. It is a part of the gospel we've not done a real good job of conflict resolution and dealing with that and if you go to the bookstore over here you see a whole section on conflict resolution Um, you can major in college in that area conflict resolution. Uh, Learn the techniques for resolving conflicts out of court and using alternative peaceful methods that bring together a victim and the perpetrator and make them work out something as opposed to filling up our courts and making it extremely expensive and demeaning and putting people in jail. But you use creative ways of resolving conflict, using starting right from biblical principles. Reducing emphasis on individualism, materialism, consumerism. That should be fairly obvious from what I had mentioned earlier. We need to consider ourselves an alternative to the larger society in which we live. We, we need to really have a dual kingdom kind of mentality. I mean, to what extent are you in this world and of it? I realize it's extremely difficult not to be of it in some ways. We have to make a living. We have to get around. Um, And we've not said you've got to separate yourself as some of these more extreme, I see them as extreme, Amish Hutterite uh, fellowships. We're not calling for that. I'm not certainly calling for that. But at the same time, to what extent do we have a real kingdom kind of mentality that I live according to an Anabaptist Christian view. I live according to a view that Jesus taught. And to the extent that that's consistent with this world, okay. But to the extent that I have to make a choice between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world, I always need to choose the kingdom of God and follow its principles even though at work or in neighborhood or perhaps even occasionally in church. Things would be otherwise. Exercise discipline, discipleship, following Christ, not just believing and accepting and going your own way, but exerting and dealing with discipleship. How do we do this? I say it has to be taught. It has to be taught. Teach it before baptism, teach it after baptism, and do it fairly routinely. I think we should separate what is biblically given from denominational practices. It just clarifies things. Why try to force things in the Bible if, in fact, there is very little biblical basis for that? And I realize you can take just about any issue and you can find something in the Bible from it. But I think we need to choose our battles carefully, if I can say that as a pacifist. But our mental, our spiritual battles, choose them carefully and make sure we hold to the core issues and some things that are not as critical are not as critical. But if we major in those minor issues, we're going to miss some of these bigger things altogether. Separate biblical authority from denominational practices. Make sure that when people are giving a testimony, that indeed they understand the basis of their salvation, and make sure they understand the teachings of Jesus, and make sure all of the things that we go, conversion, repentance, and so on. And then if you want to talk about church practices, sure. Every organization has practices. Businesses do it all the way, every organization. And I don't think that you can say even, you know, the Apostle Paul says there are different administrations. There are different ways of doing things that are not against the Bible, but they're not necessarily in the Bible either. They're reasonable ways of practically living out one's faith, one's discipleship. Institute a discipleship program. And that's, I understand there are those who are currently working on that sort of thing. Um, One of the concerns I have had about that is that it doesn't have denominational characteristics to it. And I think that that should be a part of it. But that's that's me coming from where I'm coming from. Sunday School materials. Emphasis on uh, the gospel like this. one of the lessons that we had this week in our seventh and eighth grade class among the various things, by the way the materials um, are from um, Eastern Mennonite publications, so this is material that is consistent with our beliefs, the Anabaptist viewpoint. We had a choice among a number of stories in here, one of them that I particularly liked because of the non-resistance emphasis Was Isaac returning good from evil out of Genesis 26, where Isaac was pressed hard to leave the area because the Philistines envied his wealth, his livestock, his lands, his wells. And they pushed him out and he said, Okay, I'll go. And they filled his wells up. He goes to another area and they do the same. This happens three times. He doesn't fight, he does not fight. The end of the story, of course, is that Isaac's a peacemaker. Um, Basically what happens is that uh, Abimelech comes around to seeing there's nothing he can do to overcome what God is doing for Isaac. And he wants to be, I'll call it a friend, or at least they want to live peaceably in the land. There's a whole section in the workbook about what the Bible teaches about non-resistance, 1 Peter 3.9, Ephesians 4.30. And then there's a section dealing with testing your life. Define non-resistance. What character qualities do we need to return good for evil? Have you ever talked to children about that in Sunday school or in your family? What do you need to do to resist fighting back? Give some examples of how non-resistance may be tested and, and uh, on it goes and, and so on. I mean, If you want people to believe the core elements of the gospel as we understand them, that non-resistance is, for many of us, it's not an option, but part of that gospel, it needs to be taught, and we need to stand behind it. 1 Corinthians 3.11: No other foundation can be laid than, than Jesus Christ. We always have to remember our starting point. I think we need to engage in open dialogue. Let's reason together. We will know the truth. The truth shall set us free. That's what those early Anabaptists got. We are free also from our sins. How many times do you hear people feel like they're in bondage, or churches, or restraints, and limits, and so on? Why? What is it that we think we should be doing that the church doesn't allow us to do? Is it not biblical? If it's not biblical, none of us should be doing it. And the, the wisdom of the church collectively as a community, a person should listen to that and not go off in their own direction. But if there's no good reason, biblically, for not doing it, can we not reason together? Discuss it? Dialogue? We should define our context for interpreting scripture and, again, differentiate the Bible from church practice. Take seriously programs for service. Service was one of those areas. How will the world know we are his disciples? Just by what we believe? Yeah, but you can believe anything. You can say you believe whatever. How do you know? I mean, there's a degree of of commitment there. And the world needs to see something different. To be confronted with the kingdom of God in a very secular, anti-godly world. Take seriously our programs for service. Encourage our young people to be part of outreach kind of opportunities. Uh, to be a part of programs that the church provides for short-term service, whether it's on the mission field, whether it's domestic. If we don't agree with what's going on or how things are done, well, let's work to fix it. Let's make some viable alternatives where people can put their faith into practice. Because you know what will happen, Most people will come back home and they'll want to do the same kinds of things. They'll want to do those kinds of things in their community and they'll bring those ideas, good ideas, back to the Church that can be revitalizing uh, to the rest of us. Take seriously programs for service. Restore congregational authority. Recognize that all of us, elected in elected positions, as ministers, elders, Bible class teachers, other positions in the Church, we were called out from among our brethren. Not because we were anything special, not because we had something to offer that nobody else did but because well somebody had to do it and those people were willing and that authority needs to lie within that congregation practice discipline practice accountability at all levels be responsible as Christians in our churches and toward one another Well, we went over a few minutes. I apologize for that. I, we would have been done probably 15 or 20 minutes ago. Questions, comments? Um, I'll be glad to let you go if you simply want to go, that's true. Uh, there are some books and pamphlets uh, out there on a table that, uh, that has really nothing to do with my forum, but uh, Brother Lowbly brought them along. If you want anything to give you a better idea of this issue, the Anabaptist viewpoint, uh, this book is a very worthwhile little introduction to it. Thank you all.